Thanks everyone for joining. Hey, Karen. Hi. Hey. Hi. How are you? How are you? I'm well, thanks. Can you see? Good. Me? Okay. Let us. Uh, let me see if we can get your. That was an awesome. Uh, there you are. Nice to see you. Uh, it's nice to see you as well. That's an awesome background you have there. Thank you. I even threw the uh, the VMware up there for you. Ah. <laughs> oh, that's very nice. Yeah, well, welcome. Thanks for joining on the on the breach report. We're really excited to do this and have you as our guest. I am. I am also really excited. I've been looking forward to this. That's great. We have a few. We have a few listeners that might kind of jump in and out, but uh, and 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 we're inviting any of them if they want. They can even throw questions in the chat. Oh, okay. If it makes sense, we'd love to love love to do it. So, anyone listening in, please throw. Uh, questions in the in the chat that you might love to hear from Karen. So Karen is um, we kind of met to get uh, each other kind of through Pete Vargas, and you've been in the cybersecurity space for a really long time. You got a really impressive uh, background. Could you maybe just for the people that don't know as much about kind of tell us a little bit where you got started? How did you even get into cybersecurity? Well, that's always a fun story. I, yeah. I was in grad school in computer science. Um, and my first introduction to the concept of anything with cyber, I had a class. Um, uh, um, and the, the, the textbook was Dorothy Denning's cybersecurity textbook. So um, that was my first kind of introduction to some of the con con uh, concepts. They didn't call it cybersecurity then, you know, I think it was yeah. like, information security or something yeah um and then what year uh, what kind of what years were those late was... 80s late 80s oh wow so really early and the and the only products on the market i mean just for comparison's sake were racaf acf2 both of them for ibm mainframes and government furnished crypto gear i mean we didn't have distributed computing yet mm. the pcs were just starting to come the early, early IBM PCs were starting to come on the market. So it was really early. And then, um, so encryption was really the big thing. And um, I had a software engineering class where my my lovely professor encrypted the final. And the oh, final, no. in, order, in order to be able to take the final, we had to have done all our homework for the entire semester where we would have all of the code breaking tools that he asked us to build. Okay. And so every single question on the exam, I think there were 10, had a different key and a different algorithm. And you had to break them in sequence in order to get the clues for the next key. So um, he gave us 24 hours to do that. I was the first one to turn mine in. I was, I got a hundred. I was super, so, I was so stoked by that, like that challenge. And that when it came time to do a master's project, um, he gave me a, uh, a, a fast hardware encryption problem to solve. And um, so that's what I worked on. And, and as a result of having done those really obscure <laughs> projects that nobody had ever heard of before, um, Boeing hired me immediately. And um, I, I started as a security analyst for government classified projects at the Boeing company. So that's how it got started. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you went from Boeing, then you worked at Microsoft, you worked at VMware. Where else did you, where, where were you? Were there yeah. something I missed there? 
Um, but from Boeing, um, I did a very short stint at a um, petrochemical company and went from there to um, Stanford Research Institute. And I was the program, uh, I was the research director because I'd been doing research in research and technology at Boeing um, in cybersecurity and then went to um, research and um, we ran a program called, <clears throat> pardon me, the in International Information Integrity Institute. And we ran that at SRI International. And it, through that, I got to meet the top movers and shakers in cybersecurity in private sector and federal worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so the conversation was at such a high strategic level. It was really, it, it was so stimulating and interesting. And um, so I was there for several years and then I went to um, Bank of America I ran security for uh, Global Commercial Investment Bank Asset Management and Global Treasury. I ran uh, um, business continuity for the bank, for the whole bank. Wow. And, and, yeah, nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah. um, but I had an amazing team. I mean, honestly, whenever I say that I did these things, I was a member of a huge team none of the accomplishments that I've ever been able to put on my resume yeah. could have possibly happened without this incredible team of people that was working with and for me. So yeah. um, that's really, you know, that's with all the credit. I want to, I want to just go tell everybody, you know, that's really where I, the I, magic happens. I like that you're saying that because nothing big has ever been done by a single person ever in history. It's always, it's always a team of people working together to hit a big goal. Yeah. So you can go fast alone or you can go far together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, That's so, so from bank of America, I think, let's see, I went to, I went to AT&T wireless and I went to Microsoft and then I worked on my own for several years. And in between there, I went and did a stint as a chaplain and then I came back to VMware. That's that's pretty amazing. So now that you've kind of like worked and, and you have this huge track record, um, what what are some of the things that kind of excites you about the cybersecurity space or worries you, what keeps you up at night, like some of the projects that you you know looking forward? Because when you started, it was just basic encryption. Now the attacks are so much more advanced and um, the criminals are, are, are so much more skilled, trained, and, you know, they're using social engineering, all kinds of tactics. What, what are, what, what's kind of the direction that you see happening? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's hindsight's an, a wonderful thing to be able to have. So I think, yeah. that, you know, you're asking kind of in that context from where I sit now, what has been so interesting and what do I see going forward if I'm not mistaken? That's kind of where you're just of your question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, cybersecurity has, I've always said, it's the best field in the world. I mean, it will make you extremely tired <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. because it's never boring. It touches every single part of the business. It goes from the, as far as breadth, it, it yeah. It's goes the full like depth. You have to be able to be technically conversant in so many different areas 
of, of technology and, and beyond IT. And then you have yeah. to, um, you know, be able to kind of look at the, so, so I feel like sometimes we're perched on the rim of the, uh, of the, you know, the stadium and we're watching the unfolding of geopolitical events in front of us and seeing yeah. it's going to affect us. And, and so it's just got that, this most amazing collection of ways to be both very tactical and practical as well as strategic. And, and it matters like this job matters. So I, I, I'm, I'm always really enthusiastic when somebody thinks they want to go into this field. It's, um, it can be, it can, it will test you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now being a woman in the cybersecurity field, the field IT in general, even cybersecurity, probably more so is, is heavily dominated just by males, not very many women in the field. Like, what kind of attracted you into it? And then how, I know you've, you've kind of been trying to introduce to more women figures the, the opportunities that are in this field. How, tell me a little bit about that. What, what kind of got you into it? And tell me about a little bit of the work because I know you've even spoken on that topic a few times. Yeah, well, the truth of it is I needed a job. Yeah. <laughs> it never occurred to me to even think about the fact that this was a male dominated industry. In fact, when I got my master's degree in computer science, women were 34% of the computing workforce. Wow, so that's a big, so it's actually shifted then. Yeah, it fell off a cliff. And, and I think it's bounced a little at the bottom and it's starting to kind of creep back up a little bit, but we're about, I would say we're about 18% of the technical workforce. If you look at the numbers, on diversity that all of the you know the fang companies all all put out they will report 30 percent women but the truth of that is half of those are not doing technical roles mm, which are very important to do i'm not i'm not trying yeah. to, to you know, no, no. diminish those at all but the but the fact of it is is that for women doing software engineering and engineering and you know, uh, security at a technical level, that's probably about 18% as opposed to where it was when I got my degree. So I never, it never even occurred to me that this was going to be a kind of an issue. And, and the other piece of it is, is my father, I was raised by a Navy fighter pilot father. I had two big brothers, like talk to me about being in a male dominated environment. <laughs> right. So for me, that was kind of like water off the duck's back. But that goes along with you know my upbringing and my personality, and not everybody's like that. You know, I have to recognize that not everybody's like me. These things that I was able to kind of roll with, people shouldn't have to roll with. And yeah, and, and for some people, it's a true setback. So so yeah, I I never gave it a second thought, and and certainly, I had a lot of. Um, pillow fist pounding events <laughs> when I'd go home because I'd be really it was so unfair the environment was so patently unfair in fact one time I got a in a little bit of trouble during a performance I was a manager and, and during the performance review cycle they had this very elaborate system where you you know you ranked people and they got their raises and promotions and so forth and I was like this is so convoluted I said I'm going to just do a sort of this list of people in our department 
on salary and see what it looks like. All the women were at the bottom. There was only five of us and we were all at the bottom. And so yeah. that was the thing that like, that was the first time I was like going, there's something really broken and this isn't right. And we need to, we need to figure out why it's broken and change it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you see, uh, progress, excuse me, getting over cold. Do you see progress happening? Do you see, do you see, um, you know, women entering the field and maybe demanding some of those higher salaries? We've certainly had and have uh, certain uh, women in our industry, technical as well. Some of our best like uh, penetration testers, analysts have been women and, um, you know, I feel that it, it's good for them to get in the industry because they almost, yeah, you, you got to kind of fight and scrap probably, but that's with, with, I would imagine any industry, but then you stand out so much more. Like if you, you're almost guaranteed to get an interview, at least being a woman in a, at least at our company, right? Just because we get, you know, hundreds of men and you don't really see a woman. And then if a woman resume comes through, you're like, oh man, we got at least interviewer, right? Yeah. Well, good so, for you. The truth is women still make 13% less than men. Yeah. That's the truth. And yeah. if you pay attention to, you know, the statistics, uh, I think um, Melinda French Gates is famous for quoting it and, it. and it's actually worse now than it was when she brought it out about three or four years ago, that it was going to be 270 years before women reached pay equity. Yeah, and that's, that's not just pay equity, it's pay and opportunity equity. So that if I were to open up the the top level, you know, management, you know, go to the website and it says about us, our, our you know, our officers and our, our uh, company executives, you would see women leading engineering as much as you would men, right? And you would see way more uh, underrepresented groups at that level than you do today. And so um, we have a long way to go. We do. Yeah. And, and thankfully, you know, more people like you are gonna help make that difference. But the truth is we have a, we, I keep saying that, we, truth, the truth is we have, a, we have a pipeline of people coming in to the industry. The number of women coming in is amazing. The problem is that it's a very leaky faucet. They're, they're, they're leaving in droves. They leave mm. 52% of the women who enter in the technology field will be gone by their 12th year. And they're not just gone to another job in tech. They're gone for good from tech. And they do other things because, you know, they're, they're saying that they're saying the right thing, which is I should not have to work this hard for somebody to recognize that I do good work. Yeah. 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 So, it, you know, living in the world that we do, which is obviously unfair in a lot of different capacities, if there was some advice for someone, a new individual getting into this industry, what would you, what would the advice be for them to kind of battle through and have some of the success that you've had? I had a experience when I was very young. I'm going to tell a very quick story. Um, when I was I was a student in um, in Austria in high school, 
and we did a field trip and we went to um, Dachau. Yeah, nice, nice uplifting experience, right? Yeah. But um, as we go through this, and I'm having my eyes open to something that I did not even know existed. I didn't know that I didn't know that any of this had happened. Like I, I was so sheltered. I'm in total shock. So when mm -hmm. a person is in some kind of like heightened state, they usually hear things in an amplified way, right? So our teacher stood in front of us as we had just gone through this and had the horror of all of this revealed to us. And he said, never forget that you stand on the shoulders of every person who went before you. That has stuck with me my whole life. And in, so when I talk to people who are in cyber now, there is a higher purpose for us to figure out what we have to do to stay in the game and be effective and efficient and successful. And, and that is, it's not just about us. It's about everybody who comes after us and about making a better workplace from the inside out, making a more opportunity for people who have the desire and the aptitude to do this work, to give them the opportunities to shine. And that, that, that's a higher purpose. So on those days when I go back and I might pound the daylights out of my pillow, right? And I'm just so frustrated yeah. that, that the structural inequalities in the system work against so many people. Um, I have to remember it's like, don't quit, stay in the game. The only way it's going to change is if we stay and make it change. So like that's that. my advice to people. Yeah, I love, I love that. Well, you know, one of the things we had to do at um, FIT was really kind of define our mission statement from a giant paragraph to like really getting clear on it. And what we ended up with was to impact lives through technology. Now that obviously means impacting the lives of our customers and the companies and helping them with their missions. It also means impacting the lives of the employees that work for us so that they have more opportunity. But I agree with you because if you, you need to have a bigger mission, then that's just like, this is a job because there's probably a lot right. of other easier jobs than being oh, yeah. security. And the stress is extremely high because I, I know everybody that's listening, they're usually, you know, technical people and in internal IT departments and so on, they care very deeply for the companies that they're supporting, the organizations they're supporting. And man, it, like, it's kind of a thankless job a lot of times and there's a lot of stress because if one slip up, like it's, it's, that's, that's so, that it could be, it could be disastrous for the organization. You, you carry that, that weight on your shoulders all the time. Not just disastrous for the organization, disastrous professionally for the person. Absolutely. And yeah. things are the stakes are it's a high stakes. It's high stakes. Very high stakes. Multiple levels. Yeah, yeah. It, you have to be in it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Doing it for a paycheck is utterly stupid. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's too it's too hard. Yeah. To doing this and saying that this is how I'm gonna make my living just because it's a paycheck. It, yeah. And I and I don't encounter people doing that. To be honest, I don't know anyone that I've ever encountered in my career who did this because it was a paycheck. They do they do it because they're mission driven, and they see 
they see the mission here and they know they can, they feel they can make a difference. And I think that's why it bothers me when we have management structures in place in some places I've seen in the, over the course of my career where it doesn't empower the people to bring their best to the workplace. It disempowers them. And um, and there's lots of, um, but an example of that would be shooting the messenger when somebody comes in with bad news, right? Yeah. You're not going to find out what needs to be fixed if you keep shooting the messenger. So really recognizing that every single person, whether they're super skilled at it yet or not, is got the right head mindset about what it is they're trying to accomplish here and the opportunity for leaders to help develop that in their teams is immense. So it's it's just, you know, we have we have so much room where we can make it better. And, and what I choose to do is say, instead of focusing on what's broken, sit down and say, there's so much opportunity here. What can we go do? How are we going to take advantage of that? So how how um, can teams like if you were to to come into us and, and help us, you know, say, hey, here's some advice on modernizing the SOC or modernizing your your team. What are some of the things you would look at first in an organization to see if it's, you know, if it's aligned, if if there's things that need improvement? What what are those things you 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 tend to see in the industry that need help? Well, I describe, you know, cybersecurity first responders are, have you ever seen the game Crack the Whip? I haven't seen that one, no. So I grew up in an area where we had ice on the lakes. So if you wanted to go play a game that was just hair raising, you got an extremely long rope and everybody had a place along this rope. And the leader who held the, the head of the rope would start skating around the lake. And then at some point, they would just do this thing where they crack, called crack the whip, right? They just basically do this whiplash, which down, as you go down the rope, the number of people who fall off, right, starts to increase. The reason being that the, that the impact of being on the very tail end of that rope is, is magnified by the length of the rope, right? And they go flying. I like that and, illustration. Yeah, I can see that. Right? Cybersecurity first responders are at the end of the road. So our job really is to sit down and say, all right, what can we do technically and process-wise to either shorten the rope so the impact isn't so bad or move them up the rope a little bit? But, you know, by nature of the job, they're they're responding to things that are unforeseen. And so they kind of tend to be towards the end. What can I do upstream to make their job easier? And how do I listen to them to hear what they think that needs to be? Um, so there's kind of a two-part piece of it. One of them is process and technology to make things work better, and people to make things work better. But listen to the people, let, let them tell us um, much of what they see that needs to be, that would make their job better. Uh, an example is right now in, and, and this is why I'm really excited about some of the stuff that we're doing at VMware, um, 
the capability that we've just delivered to the SOC to integrate the visibility of what's going on across the network as well as the endpoints, right? And mm. containers and in workloads means that we don't have all of these little pieces to knit together in order to try to put together a cohesive story. And, and you know, we need to drive, for example, we need to drive false positives to zero. And, and they're right now, I think around 70% in the, in the general environment. So what we can do about that and what we can do to help resolve, uh, identify and resolve a true incident um, as quickly as possible. So the dwell time is reduced. And, and I think anything that we can do for the team to take busy work and wasted time out of their day so they can be more effective and efficient at finding the things that we're asking them to find. I think that's that's a huge thing. And I think when we create the technology in, that it's integrated, that it gives that visibility without having, I don't have to go send out a ticket to somebody to go get some data from the network team or whatever. I can pull it all together in one place. Then the SOC gets much more effective, right? Yeah. And, and, and who wants, and it's like, Okay, here's the thing. I've had, we've all had those jobs where Sunday comes around and we're like, oh, I have to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> or the other experience, which is I cannot wait to get into work tomorrow. And when a person knows that they're coming into an environment where they're being completely set up for success and that we've, we're, we're identifying the problems, management's identifying the problems and taking them out of their way, that's a really fun place to work. So even if the job is hard, it's still fun because you you know that you're doing your best. You're not wasting your time. And I think that's kind of how we have to treat, you know, all parts of work. But the SOC from a cybersecurity perspective is a ter terrific opportunity for that. Yeah, I, 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 love, I love what you're saying because I, I know like, with any task, especially like that false positive rate. So when the analysts are looking at it, if you have a really high false positive rate, they, they almost get a false sense of like, I'm just looking at white noise anyway. Whereas if you have a lower rate, they get very focused because they realize that like, hey, any one of these could be a real breach. I got to figure out which one it is and kind of weed out and tune the tools appropriately. Right, right. Yeah, that's huge. No. I think also having, you know, the SOC be part of a process. So I think one of the things that's so important is, okay, so I found all of this information and I did a, maybe I did a, a, a post incident analysis and I learned a lot of things. How am I using that information to go back and harden my environment and shrink my attack surface? Mm -hmm. So, so that the problem starts to, we start to drive the problem space to zero. That's what I mean by this upstream, like getting upstream, getting farther up the rope and trying to solve the problem. It's like, if I walk into an environment and I'm supposed to be the SOC analyst and I just have nothing but pings all day long because the environment's so dirty, um, my attack surface is so uncontrolled. The answer is not get more SOC analysts. The answer is <laughs> go shrink the attack surface. Right, um, right. right? Yeah, I, no, I agree. I um, one guy, um, uh, his name's Sean. He 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 kind of he was a uh, he was a Green Beret, 
And he then went from military into cybersecurity. And one of the things he told me that I really found very interesting was he's like, people look at cybersecurity as a, a technical problem. He's like, when you got, but you have to think about these are criminals attacking something. You need to kind of think of it in a more military strategic way, the way you describe that attack surface. Is he like, if we were, you know, if we were trying to protect a small village in Afghanistan, for example, first thing we would do is figure out what the attack surface is, what, what do we have in personnel, what do we have in weapons, what do we have, where, where's the enemy going to be most likely coming in from, when are they going to be coming, all these kind of things. And then they think about that completely differently. And, and I think a lot of times organizations don't think about that, like what you're describing. They have that kind of messy environment. They're like, oh, you know, throw some technology at it versus like really kind of getting a lay of that land and then creating the game plan around that. I, I think that's a great metaphor to use for the people who are on the front line doing incident detection and response. Yeah. Because, because that, yeah, that just really fits. It feels very, you are in a, and you're in a, you're in a fight and you have people who are literally attacking you and you know the the old saying you don't bring in don't bring a knife to a gunfight yeah right so we have to we have to think about it like how do we get strategic and how do we make sure that we are in the best position to be effective but i oh. my my one thing i just want to add here is cybersecurity is so much more than what is happening on that frontline battlefield and we as an industry have gotten super focused on everything being about ransomware and attacks and so forth. And, and no, no question that that's important. But in the meantime, we have something in the background that McKinsey calls the number one barrier to uh, digital innovation, and that's technical debt. And I call that our number one threat. It's not sandstorm. It's the fact that we've accumulated so much technical debt in the background that our that that is our attack surface, right? And and there's a whole business management process around what do we do about that. Um, so I think we'll hear a lot more about this. It's starting to be talked about in McKinsey and Company. It's starting Bain, Harvard Business Review. They're all writing about it. So I think we need to kind of look at that from a business standpoint. Cyber cybersecurity, you know, frontline fight that we're all in all the time is kind of the way cybersecurity is starting to be identified. And I think we would all serve the industry well also if we could could include the conversation along with that that includes the conversation about how this is a business imperative and what does mm -hmm. that look like and how does how does our appetite for technology innovation create more technical debt that ends up being our being a risk? So there's there's more to it. I, I like that. I like what you're saying. Now, VMware obviously they they have the resources and the need to really build out this robust cybersecurity team. A lot of the organizations we're dealing with are more smaller, mid-sized businesses, right? And they can't always um, it does, it does make financial sense for a lot of them to, to build out their own 
cybersecurity, 24 seven monitoring team and so on. And that's why they leverage us, right? There's, there's, exactly. so how, how important is that for an organization that's not thinking about this, right? They're just thinking about, you know, generating revenue or if it's a nonprofit, like, you know, hitting other, other goals and, and, and metrics, cybersecurity is a lot of times the last thing on their mind. How important is them, to, is it for, for those organizations to start thinking differently um, start, you know, thinking about having a sock built, you know, in that mindset. Well, how, how critical is that? So the, the risk equation, I would ask, and, and you're totally right, by the way, I want to, uh, I agree with you. I, I have always operated at the enterprise level, right? Yeah. So massive resources, also a, ma a massive target. So the number of resources were commensurate to the target. Absolutely. What a lot of people, a lot of people for many years just said, you know, small, medium business, they're not going to come after us. Why would they come after us? Like, what do we have that they, that they want? Um, and that hopefully that attitude is starting to shift because every business, whether it's a small business, medium enterprise, and medium can still be a lot of bucks, you know, it's just, yeah, it's it can be big, um, is what is it that, what is your duty of care? What mm -hmm. is your, what is your fiduciary obligation to your, to your company, right? But when you, if this is starting to shift a little bit with, when you are processing other people's information, when, when you are a, uh, part of a supply chain to other people, you have an obligation to not dig a hole in the ground and leave it uncovered. I'm kind of a fan of the book of Leviticus. And so the, the book of Leviticus talks about if you dig a pit and somebody falls in, guess what? You're liable, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think about that all the time in cybersecurity. If, you, if you've got an internet presence, you've started digging a pit. If you haven't done something to make sure that that pit is adequately covered, you are liable. So the degree of liability, everybody's going to have to kind of assess that. I highly recommend having managed services keep an eye on all of that for you because it's really, that's not where you want to be spending your time. If you're a business owner, you want to work, you want to work on your business, not in your business. Let somebody else who knows how to do that, do that for you. And and the security piece of that is 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 increasingly critical. Um, I don't know what the latest statistic is. You might know, but you know most com companies who are small enterprises that are hit with ransomware, they'll be out of business in six months. Yeah, it's 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 catastrophic, and and, and definitely if you're an internal IT person, the the. The statistics of you still working at that company, even if this company survives, is so low that you're probably not going to be there. They might keep you through the disaster, but then things are going to change, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you said earlier. I mean, that's 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 disastrous to you know to your career trajectory as well from yeah. a professional standpoint. Yeah. Well, like like I said, I mean, we have there's our personal liability. Which, which could just be something as, as straightforward as you lose your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. It's starting to escalate into something larger than that in some cases. Um, but there's the, there's, the light, there's the 
obligation that we have to our business. Um, now, if you're a sole proprietor and it's just you and it's like, you know, that's one thing. But you're part of an ecosystem of businesses, trading partners. And what a lot of people don't realize is, just like in warfare, what do they go for? Soft targets. So they go for the soft target. And, and, and you might not think you've got anything as, as a business owner for other people to care about. But the truth of it, of it is they have you have a Rolodex. And they care about your Rolodex. They do. So you might be a supplier, a small business supplier to a large enterprise. Or you might be somewhere in the chain of that. That chain is valuable, and uh, um, so there's you know there's that aspect of it too. You you are a player in a community, and yeah. you can't really pretend like it doesn't matter. No, that's that's a that's a it's a really good perspective. Um, now you mentioned duty of care, so that's mm-hmm. kind of a term that that's kind of been coming into the industry. Can you kind of explain, because duty of care is now, it's actually turning into like, why don't you talk about it a little bit? Could you explain for, for anyone that's never heard the term, high level what it is, and then what, what's kind of, what you see happening with duty of care? Sure. So it's a legal term and a financial term that just basically means that a, in the context of a board of directors, they have a fiduciary obligation to operate in the best interests of the company. They owe a duty of care to the company. There's a duty of, you know, there, there's there's a number of these duties. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to try to get into the lawyer legal legal definitions. But but it basically means that you're going to take reasonable all reasonable measures, uh, and reasonable is a very squishy term in many cases, or has been. Um, to date, to do the things that are necessary in order to make sure that the company's best interests are served. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's been where we've operated for a, a, a really long time. And 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 cybersecurity was just one risk element in all of the risks that a board had to deal with. Things are shifting over time, and I, I've I've been a, I've I have a personal mantra that I use. I mean, professionally. Which is that we we are we should demonstrate due diligence to a defensible standard of care. That sounds like a big mouthful of fancy words, but basically, at the end of the day, what that means is is that if I'm ever if I'm in charge of this cybersecurity for a company and I'm going to be deposed by hostile counsel, my goal is to be able to stand up in front of that in that deposition and say, I can prove to you that all of the controls that are in place for this company are the necessary and sufficient set of controls. And I can prove to you that they are in place operational effectively 100% of the time. Yeah. Next question. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought for a lot of organizations trying to they had to think about having to prove what's in place and the consistency of it. It's that's that's true, but I think and this has got to be my next book. But um, that we did that, and that's why I talk about it because I I know it's possible. And now, is, there's now a framework, some frameworks that I mean, obviously there's a lot of frameworks, but there's some frameworks emerging around duty of care. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, where, where can people take a look at some of those websites to kind of see what's coming down the pipe? Sure. 
it's so, already taking place. I shouldn't even say coming down the pipe. It's kind of happening. Yeah, it is. It is happening. Uh, duty of care. There's a duty of care risk assessment. Um, you can go get a. You can go see it. It's freely available. All the terms in terms of using it and so forth. There's no charge for it, like so many of the other frameworks and standards. Um, and and it's a, a very short and sweet standard actually, which is at docra.org. That's docra.org. Um, what they have attempt, what they have basically done here is taken the clause out of ISO 27001, which is the information security management standard that's recognized internationally. And there's a clause in there that says your risk assessment has to include consideration of all of your stakeholders. You have to identify all of your stakeholders and include them in your risk assessment. That's already an international standard, has been for years, I think, since at least 20 years. Okay. Wow. What DOCRA did was it said, here's how you do that. Because what, what the squishy word in all of this that I mentioned earlier is the word reasonable. So if it says, I'm obligated to exercise reasonable controls, how does the reasonable get defined? So the DOCRA standard right. tried, the DOCRA standard basically said, here's how you do that. You, you have to include not only your, your obligation to the company, but you have to include the obligations to your stakeholders. Identify your stakeholders, people people whose whose information you hold, right? Uh, trading partners, business partners whose information you may hold, um, uh, any kind of intellectual property of your own or of anybody else. All of those things are now part of your risk assessment. And instead of me deciding, this is what I have to do to this is what a reasonable level of control is for this, I have to include their opinion. So, so let's just say you and I were in business together and I sure. held your company business plan for the next five years. I let's, was a, let's pretend it's a law firm. Let's say it's a law firm and they have a client. Like let's paint a picture of what that, like a big, maybe they have a big, big okay. they represent, they're a law firm. Okay. Like, what would that look like for them? Consultant law firm, okay. And they're the holder of, yeah, all of this information about your business. Absolutely. They, they, have, they have to do their risk assessment that basically includes your input as to what level of harm you're willing to endure if they should use that information. Mm -hmm. So what so it's like um, another example I would I would give is in a healthcare setting. And yeah. patient records. Yep. And let's just say, you know, now we're in a situation where somebody has to explicitly identify what their risk tolerance is um, because it says, okay, I hold patient records for 250,000 patients. What tolerance do I have for losing those patient records? What, what do I think patients would be willing to endure? And if you look at the recent lawsuits in Pennsylvania, where cancer patients had their very explicit naked pictures posted online by the hackers who stole it, right? You get a picture of what is at stake here. Yeah. And so the, the duty of care risk assessment 
requires us to take that into consideration and build our controls commensurate with the level of protection. So if I said, which would never happen, if I said, I'll, I can handle 50% loss in patient records, that would never, nobody would ever say that. For, for, for one thing, it's just, it'd probably be discoverable um, in a lawsuit. But, but, you know, if I say, I, I'm willing to tolerate that level of insecurity um, versus I'm not willing to tolerate anything more than 99.999% protection of patient records. Well, this, that's, that's, if that's done at the risk oversight level, it gives very clear direction to the, to the executives in the organization, the officers and the executives in the organization that says, this is your marching orders. Make sure the control environment that you build is 99.999% reliable for protection of patient records. That's and, a good perspective. I, I think a lot of organizations are familiar with the concept, but they're not really so familiar with like that there's the potential things that are happening in the industry around duty care and, 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 and financial consequences and, and lawsuits and things that are, you know, that are actually yeah. happening. A lot of times you hear about the breach, but you don't hear about the aftermath that's happening. Well, right. And so in the case of uh, litigation, what... Um, and, and a really good um, place where this is being used is in the state of Pennsylvania, very effectively. This DOCRA has now been adopted as a, I believe it's a rule at the state level, state AG level in, oh, wow. 10, in 10 states. The latest one was Colorado, yay Colorado. So there's already 10 states doing this. Yes. That they're they're leveraging this this framework in legal context when there's an issue. Yes. So it's a thing. It's not a concept. It's a real thing. And it's being utilized in helping to bring litigation to closure much faster than it has been over yeah. time, because it's so much more clear and easier to define now what a reasonable level of security is. So yeah. this has been the wiggle room that everybody's been dealing with for such a long time. Reasonable controls has been ultimately undefined and has to be haggled out after the fact right and so it becomes an argument between lawyers about what's reasonable. what's reasonable now if you're in one of these 10 states and growing number of states that argument is a little more cut and clear based on that framework on that docker framework framework right it's a thing that's and a big a deal i don't think a lot of people know about this karen <laughs> Well, that's why I appreciate the opportunity with you to talk about it. It get to get the word out. It's such a it's such an important um, it's an important development, and born out of already existing international standards. And you know, um, so it's not like <clears throat> it's not recently invented. This has been around for twenty years. It just hasn't been really put into a very tangible. Um, practical way for people to use it as a risk assessment. That's what DOCRA did. And so, um, so kudos to the people that have been um, promoting this. There's a number of them very vocally. Um, of note is uh, the Sedona Conference put out a commentary on DOCRA. So that's also available for people to share with their um, legal counsel if they're interested. 
So are you recommending for organizations that are kind of hearing about this for the first time, say you're an IT director or maybe you're a partner at a law firm or any business doesn't have to be a law firm, um, what would be the steps they should take? Okay, I've heard about Docker now. I didn't really know what it was. I'm, I'm kind of looking online. What, what, what should they do within the organization now that they're starting to get that information to like make some impact and change in their organization? Well, I think like with anything, turning a super tanker takes time. And, and the first thing is to yeah. get familiar with what other attorneys um, are saying about this. So I think downloading the DOCRA standard, it, it, um, it's out there right now, and I think it's version .0.7 or something. Um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't getting legs as a final thing. I would go yeah. ahead and download that. I would also download the comment commentary from the Sedona conference on DOCRA and share that with with the attorneys. And, and I'm sure that the people that are, um, I can't speak, I really can't speak for them, but there's people that are um, consulting on this and people and, and state AG offices that are implementing this. And that might be a good source of information to do, you know, Absolutely. and gathering your data and deciding how you're going to move forward with this. Like, you know, I, I really resist the idea of, of coming down with a hammer. And although I, I have been known to kind of do that um, and just saying, you got to do this, like you got to do this. I think it's an exceptionally good idea to do this. <laughs> um, and if it were me and I were consulting to a company on this topic, that's, I would absolutely, I would be, so here, here's, let me, let me, let me put this in context. When I say demonstrate due diligence to a defensible standard of care, where do I get a defensible standard of care from? I get that from widely adopted and rec internationally recognized standards. If I, right, you can't go wrong if you use COVID, IDLE, and ISO 27000 series. You can't go wrong. There's a and you can do all of your compliance work if you follow those. So yeah. you can simplify, streamline, make security easier, and you have based your program and built your program on something that I didn't, we didn't dream up. We didn't make it up. Like a whole bunch of really smart people went through this whole long process to get this instituted as an international standard. That's what I'm going to point to when I say, what's my, what's my framework? What's my reference point? And all DOCRA is, is an expansion of one of the clauses that's a requirement in one of those standards. Yeah. No, I think this is I think this is huge advice because a lot of a lot of the people that 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 listen to, for example, this series, they're you know internal IT leaders, um, but they're not necessarily the legal counsel. And legal counsel might not even know about this. And this might be a good way for them to kind of a lot of times when you're running leading. IT within an organization, you, you're you're dealing with keeping the lights on, you're dealing with cybersecurity, yeah. you're dealing with the technology, yeah. but this is like really kind of big picture thinking and also showing value 
um, as a contributor of the organization, as a leader taking the initiative and saying, hey, we need to have a conversation, a strategic conversation and, and work on road mapping where we are to where we need to be because here's the real world consequences and, and, and legal needs to know about this, leadership needs to know about this and we can all then champion a, a game plan and a strategy to, to, to getting closer to protecting this organization and, and, and strengthening the, the posture. Yeah. And, and like with anything else, it's kind of forward looking. Mm -hmm. so, um, this may never bite you because if you don't have a breach, it's never going to come to light. And I, I don't know about that. Like, I feel like every company has breaches now, and it's just a matter of like catching them and doing something about them. Oh, like, here you go, my tongue, the tongue in my cheek. <laughs> it's like the bre the the idea the you know there's two kinds of companies: those that have been breached and those that don't know it yet. Um, yeah. But my my point for saying it is, it has to be with all the other things that companies have to do. Like honestly, if I'm not bringing in revenue. That's my number one risk to the company. Mm -hmm. So, so cybersecurity takes a back seat to making sure that we stay alive. Uh, and and yes, you could go out of business with a cybersecurity breach, but it hasn't happened yet. That's my point of trying to make that you know the illustration that companies, all companies, whether they're enterprise or small business, have a balancing act of a variety of risks that they have to deal with. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it that being said, um, it behooves everyone to include uh, duty of care in their risk strategy for cybersecurity and for protection of records. Um, so that's what uh, that's fantastic. Well, Karen, I know we're getting to the top of the hour. I, I want to thank you for, for jumping on here. That was a lot of great information we covered. I, well, I think that, that was huge. So thanks, thanks for coming on. And, and I, I think uh, this was a great conversation. I know you've been talking and championing this for a long time. Um, and and I, I think that makes a big impact to a lot of organizations that get to hear that message. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I love ha having the conversation with you and I look forward to getting together and continuing the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it again. No, that was really great. We'd love, love to kind of keep keep in touch and see how things are developing, what you're working on. And um, I, I think for all of the other companies that are, you know, um, out here fighting through the different economic cycles and so on to see what, what some of the real leaders in the industry like VMware are doing it's it, it it helps it helps us to also kind of learn from someone that's been more successful than us and and, and see how we can do it better so thank you well, sharing is everything okay yeah. all right i'll let you go thanks so much and we'll stay in contact i really appreciate you and i i know uh everyone that's going to be listening is, is is grateful as well so thank you karen thank you all right have a great day see you ya too. bye